Welcome to Expert Extra, a new feature of the Inside 254 podcast, where we sit down with an expert in a field to help us and you make sense of current events. We hope you enjoy it. Inside 254 podcast is so excited to get to talk to Susan Bordeaux today. Susan Bordeaux is a professor of gender and women's studies and holds the Otis A. Singletary Chair in the Humanities at the University of Kentucky. She is the author of so many books, including Unbearable Weight, Feminism, Western Culture, and the Body, The Male Body, A New Look at Men in Public and in Private, and The Creation of Anne Boleyn, A New Look at England's Most Notorious Queen. She is the editor of several collections, one of which I'm going to talk about in a second, which is The Provocations, a Transnational Reader in the History of Feminist Thought. Susan and I connected because of my deep love for her book, uh, The Destruction of Hillary Clinton, that came out in April of 2017, I believe. And yep. yep, Okay, good. (laughs) And she is everywhere. She's in bookstores, in the media, academic institutions, always talking about this topic. When I'm trying to understand what the heck happened, I look to Susan's work. Bordeaux is known for the clarity, accessibility, and contemporary relevance of her writing. And she is beyond active on social media and gracious on it. So you can keep up with all of her writings at her website, BordeauxCrossings.com. So the way I know of Susan's work is that basically she's in every anthology I ever assign for (laughs) teaching uh, WGS courses, women's and gender study courses. And I adore using her, her collection provocations for my graduate students when I'm talking about feminist and gender theory. So that is my go to. So I was uh, very well aware of Susan's work well before she wrote The Destruction of Hillary Clinton. The Destruction of Hillary Clinton uh, is this book that I listened to, and I'm pretty sure everybody driving near me thought I was crazy because I was screaming all the time. This book brought Susan to Inside 254. She's also a patron of the podcast that she found, I believe, through, I'm assuming, the review that I wrote of the book on Inside 254's Amazon page. So a quick summary of the book to bring us in, and then we're going to talk about it. So the destruction of Hillary Clinton asked the same question I continue to ask myself. How did someone so qualified lose to someone so not qualified to be president? Bordeaux's book must have been written in a tear to be on shelf so quickly. And we're going to talk about the epilogue that comes in the paperback in a few minutes. And I share her urgency. Starting with an exhaustive list of Clinton's accomplishments and successes, the book moves to explain that Hillary was not a bad candidate, but that instead she was swept away in a perfect storm of bad and untrue media, narratives, and negative campaigning. Bordeaux's methodical look at the news and reportage of the campaign had me yelling in my car a few times as I listened to the audiobook. But most times I just felt sad that someone so accomplished could be hijacked by Bordeaux's top three candidates for the ruination of the campaign in order of importance, James Comey, Anthony Weiner, and Bernie Sanders, whom she argues did not endorse Hillary quickly enough as she had done when she lost the primary to Obama. So the destruction of Hillary Clinton helped me get beyond my pat answer of misogyny when trying to work through Clinton's loss. Bordeaux shows it was misogyny coupled with the confluence of forces working against Hillary that destroyed her political campaign for president. And I also want to say that Hillary Clinton herself cited Bordeaux's text uh, in her book, What Happened. So hi, Susan. Welcome to the show. I'm tired of just reading this. (laughs) 
Thank you for having me. What a great introduction and perfect summary of the book. Oh, I mean, thank I love, you. I love the way you emphasize that, you know, instead of seeing sexism as it, rather sexism, it conditions everything else. And yes. it was indeed a perfect storm, or as I call it when I'm not censoring myself, a clusterfuck. <laughs> I'm so glad you don't have to censor yourself then. Um, yeah, it, it it really it really helped me make sense at a time when I was very low. So I'm grateful that you had written that book. Um, so Susan, my first question to you is the question Hillary Clinton asks, which is, "What happened? Can you give our listeners an idea of you know your answer to what happened?" Well, of course, we keep finding out more and more and more of what happened, but um, it it you know. What I try to do in the book is to take apart all the pieces. And some of those pieces um, we've now discovered were exacerbated by the, the you know, helpful cooperation of Russia. Mm -hmm. But I would definitely argue against um, what we're now hearing on the media that uh, it was Russia. You know, I think the media has seized on Russia as a way to avoid its own responsibility. Hmm. And in fact, um, you know, nothing, uh, I have a pretty complicated, though simply written, analysis of what happened. But the fact is that all the different pieces could never have really achieved power without the media. Hmm. So there's a section on Bernie and the way in which, you know, Bernie, the, there's kind of a bookends, you know, one one side of the, of the little collection is Bernie at the other end is Comey. And then in the afterwards, we go into more. But um, Bernie could never have achieved what he achieved without the media empowering him. Comey could never have created the destruction that he did without the media empowering him. So there is a kind of, though I never say the media is what sunk Hillary, um, there's a kind of ongoing argument about the importance of the media, mainstream media. I'm not talking about Fox. I'm talking about MSNBC uh, and, you know, the way in which they reported on her so as to create what I argue is a false Hillary. Mm -hmm. You know, people voted against someone very different from a real person. They they voted against a caricature. Yeah. And, you know, creating that character with Bernie, certainly Trump, uh, all the various kinds of, you know, centuries of sexist thinking that got mm -hmm. pulled on um, when it was convenient. Uh, the emphasis on in the media on the email scandal, you know, the inability to cover her. A lot of what I, I write about in the book that when I came out, was kind of news, has now become pretty familiar. I mean, you know, the email business, for example. <laughs> I think that even Andrea Mitchell has admitted that the media harassed Hillary. Um, and more and more journalists are admitting, yeah, we really did screw up there. They don't say it in so many words. They circle around it. But I think it's become pretty much um, known that that emphasis on emails to, you know, as kind of equivalent to all of the things that Trump was doing was a very destructive force. 
Um, and then, of course, there, there, you know, there was the um, machinations of the GOP, which, you know, really have been in operation since Bill Clinton was, you know, governor of Arkansas and have followed them, you know, throughout their careers and um, which uh, got doubly empowered by what went on this time around. And finally, Comey. Yeah. You know, and Comey is someone that really, you know, intrigued me a lot because I couldn't figure out exactly what was going on with him. And uh, I've written uh, quite a bit about you him have. since, uh, yeah. trying to put the pieces together of the Comey picture. And I now have a, you know, a bigger picture than I had when I when I wrote the book. So that was uh, going to be my next question, actually, is what did you make of Comey's what I called the atonement tour? And I know you wrote a lot about this on your website, so I know I know what you're going to say probably. But if for our listeners, you know what? Now that you've thought you've had some distance and time to think about him, and then he goes out and does this kind of like weird atonement tour. What were your thoughts during that? And what? How did that help maybe solidify or complicate the pieces that you had put together into this narrative you were trying to create? Yeah. Well, you know, I really was looking forward to Comey's book. Mm. And- and because I had this fantasy that Comey, because he had built himself as such a creature of integrity mm-hmm. and honesty, mm-hmm. was going to admit, boy, did I screw up. But he never did. You know, we can call it his atonement tour, and he sure <laughs> has been paid. He's had to pay for it. But he never said, I screwed up. What he said was, um, I had terrible choices to make. I had to choose the least terrible of the terrible. Uh, If I had to do it all over again, I would do it the same. I mean, he never came out and said, I regret it. Um, The most we ever got was, um, you know, if I thought that I was at all responsible for the election of Trump, I would feel slightly nauseous. I was just going to ask you about that, right? That kind of milk toast. I have it circled in in here. um, That kind of milk toast. Uh, response that I would be slightly nauseous. And I'm like, bad food makes me slightly nauseous. Like, what are you, this is not the level of, 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 of atonement that I want. Yeah. So you felt like he was maybe dancing around or pussyfooting around the thing, or do you think he just doesn't think he's at fault? Well, I think that he has, I mean, some people have called it a boy scout complex. Hmm. Um, I think that he, really has difficulty um, admitting that he's made a mistake. He's so invested in the picture of himself as acting with integrity, being honest, a truth teller, you know, a, a good person, that I think he simply couldn't acknowledge where he may have acted um, with, uh, you know, he, he acted politically. He didn't act politically in the sort of superficial sense of trying to do in Hillary Clinton, but he did make political calculations the whole time. And he was not a, he wasn't able to actually admit that. He kept saying, you know, the FBI is above politics. Well, you know, the more we find out about it, and this was even clear to me when I wrote the, the version of the book before the afterword that um, there was intense pressure on him from anti-Clinton forces within the FBI. Uh, you know, those of us who were following it closely saw it at the time, you know, in the remarks made by Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, 
you know, seemed to know what was going to happen before it happened. You know, there's a uh, exactly the opposite of what Donald Trump is claiming. There's a fierce anti-Clinton contingent within the FBI that I believe put enormous pressure on Comey hmm. to balance out everything he did that seemed to be in favor of Clinton in that first announcement, right? So, yes, we're not going to indict her, but mm -hmm. she's, you know, reckless and, and careless. And to uh, not treat, um, protect that investigation the way he was protecting um, the, the Trump invest the investigation into Russia and Trump. Uh, he's just not admitted that you know, he paints a picture in his book of the FBI as this uh, smooth running machine in which everybody was pretty much on the same page. Really, nothing could be further from the truth. So I think that uh, trying to get, remember what your original question about him was, I think that um, I think it's pretty clear now that any while well, any number of things could have made a difference because after all, it was a very close election. Certainly, the Comey announcement in October was among the most important. You know, we've got people who've done statistical, you know, stati statistical research to show that that last week, undecided people decided, you know, people who were on the fence. And it, it did probably, without that Comey announcement, she would have squeaked through, even given all the things that I, I detail in the book. Yeah. I agree with that assessment. I do. I feel like that was the, the turning point um, for sure. And I, do you think that Comey, I don't, not that you can get inside his head, but I know you've spent a lot of time looking at him. I tried to. Do you, do you think he thinks he's at fault and he's just not saying it? Or do you, I mean, I really thought all those interviews were super slimy for, for my very own. Slimy, okay, very so we're on the same page. Yeah, very slimy. I, we're on the same page there. Yeah, yeah. I, it's just, it was. And it was, if you, I don't know if you read the book, but his Oh, book, no, I didn't. I know you read it in like a night, right? Okay, let yeah. me tell you. Yeah, because I, I know you talk, tore through it. So let's you hear. You want to talk about slimy. Um, that is, I would I consider it even slimier than um, his interviews mm. because in the book he's managed to con a whole lot of, if you think back way before the IG report, you know, which changed people's view of Comey. Before the IG report, when people were reviewing the book, the standard line was, this is a man who had an error in judgment, but a dedicated, honest person. Mm -hmm. And what the book does is to really try to create that impression of mm. it, you know, and that's what's sort of slimy about it to me, that, you know, he so goes out of his way to convince people that, you know, he is a good person, right? I mean, and in fact, it's, you know, he, he trips over the line into downright arrogance as far as that's concerned. Mm. I mean, think about the, the, the you know, his claim in the first, in the preface to the book, that um, he wants to kind of set a model of leadership and integrity. I mean, oh. that's kind of extraordinary. <laughs> I did not know that that was the, yeah, the premise of the whole text. Yeah, it is. It is. He says it right out at the beginning. Um, so the book had me kind of like furious. The, the parts of the book that I liked, 
um, were the parts of the book that the media complained about. They felt that he was snarky, below the belt, when it came to talking about Trump's hands and his yellow face. And I thought those were the best parts of the book because <laughs> I felt as though, okay, now we're seeing a real human being. Yeah. Right. We're seeing a human being who, you know, who's letting his uh, his um, disgust with this man out, who's not trying to censor himself. And all the prissy little reviewers, you know, they yeah, were like, know. ooh, we didn't like this part. You are definitely not a prissy reviewer. No. <laughs> prissy, I've never been accused of being. The book, you know, don't even bother <laughs> If, if, if you that's kind of how I felt like about it. I looked at what you said about it and I was like, yep, that's good enough for me. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's not worth it. So speaking of, of not prissy, I, I love the, what you wrote on, um, is this the Melville site? The, the blogging that you did when the new paperback came out. Is that what this is from? Probably. What's happened since part one and two? And, oh, yeah, and that's ultimately became the afterword. Yeah. Yes. So this is from the afterword. And, and I love this. If you will indulge me, I'll read this for our readers. Sure, I will. Um, are his continual insults and macho threats incompetence? And we're talking about Trump, obviously, or strategy aimed at pleasing his base and creating distractions when the investigation into his dirty politics and dirty business gets too hot? Probably some of both. It's clear he knows little about history, geography, international affairs, or how our government works, and doesn't seem interested in learning. But surely there is dark craft involved in his appropriation of the term fake news to fudge the distinction between deliberately disseminated disinformation, which we know now was endemic to the election, and responsible reporting that he just doesn't like, simply because it isn't favorable to him. So there's been no pivot. This is something that, that was talked about a lot. And you end this paragraph with, um, they remain bizarrely uninterested in actually confronting the question of how it could possibly have come to be that we elected for president a dangerously reactive, self-absorbed, self-aggrandizing bully who is utterly unequipped for the job. This is not prissy language. I love it. <laughs> and, um, you know, you write, and, and this was added into the paperback edition uh, that just came out a few months ago, right? Is it Janu yeah, January? January. Yeah. Uh, so congratulations. It must have been very hard to write that or maybe easy. I don't know. Um, Both. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, you know, hard in terms of, um, you know, that, that and the book as well in the rise in blood pressure, mm -hmm. you know, the revisiting of all of the frustration and anger. But easy in the sense that being able to sit down and express that all and create the narrative that I didn't see anyone in the press presenting, you know, it was but that I knew that other people out there were thinking and would, you know, hear their own, find their own feelings and thoughts in that was, you know, that really gave me sort of sustenance in a way. I mean, that felt good. So there, it was always a mixed bag of emotions for me um, writing about this stuff. And I'm, I'm grateful to you for it because it, like I said, it's helped. I usually can make sense of how I feel about things, but this one was, was really big for me. Um, this, this idea that everybody kept waiting for this proverbial pivot and um, how you write that it never happens. Right. So and now, of course, it's really I'm sorry to interrupt. No, you, don't. But please do. 
far from getting the pivot, you know, it's amazing when we think back to that time when the press kept saying, you know, uh, maybe this is the pivot. Mm-hmm. And now, right now, we have more decisive proof than ever that not only is there no pivot, but we have, you know, a fascist dictator, mm-hmm. a fascist, racist, sexist, you know, con man who is running our country. Um, you know, we are, this is about as low as you can possibly go. I mean, the idea of pivot is so far from anything that's happened. You know, we've just sunk lower and lower and lower. He has sunk lower and lower and lower. Um, and do you point. feel, do you feel like every time where it's, you think it's the lowest and then there's like a lower point that you didn't even know could be achieved? Have you, do you feel like <laughs> yeah. that's what's happening? Like yeah. everybody else seems so surprised. And and I should say that we're recording this um, at the time where uh, Congress is about to vote tonight on two bills to ensure that children are taken from their parents. <laughs> so this is where we're at. Right. This is the, right. the low point that we're referring to right now. But by the time this goes out, who knows what low point we'll be at. So how do you I think a lot of people have come to me at thinking about these low points and and wondered how to sustain themselves. I, I, are you hearing yeah. a lot of desperation yeah. and overwhelm from your people as well? Oh, God, yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, I mean, one of the things that I haven't yet really talked about this on my Facebook page, I like to sort of converse with, with the people on my Facebook page and get their opinions a lot. Um, I have a good group on that page. Um, but one of the things I'm working on with my sister, who is a therapist, is, you know, just what affects living as we have mm. since the election of Trump has had on us. And it seems to me that we haven't yet fully, fully confronted how it has changed the experience of being alive and being a human being. You know, it's a little bit like what it's like if you are um, part of a family with an abusive father, but you're not the one being abused. You're the one who is watching, can't do anything about it. There's no exit, or this is how you feel. There's no exit. There's no way to address it. The system is sealed, right? And I think that on you know, a whole other level, not on the family level, we are going through something like that. And it's really quite profound in terms of what it's done to people. I have two therapist sisters and I have my own therapist. And I, we actually, sometimes he should pay me because we spend more time talking politics. I have a similar therapist. (laughs) But, um, you know, and they all have remarked on, you know, the, the symptoms that people bring to them. And I don't think it's been described quite accurately yet. Um, And that's one of the things that I do want to work on, you know, with the aid of people who have more expertise in the psychological dimensions of things than I do. Um, Because it is, uh, it, it does feel, yeah, we talk about the November elections. And yes, there are marches. And, you know, there's people resist in various ways, but so far, power keeps re-inscribing itself, keeps getting reinforced, right? Keeps resealing itself. 
from you know the cracks and the chinks and we keep waiting for a moment when it's going to turn around you know when um you know i remember months ago when i i heard something now that just sounds like nothing but at the time was something from the Mueller investigation maybe it was the first indictments and i remember that um i was ready to break open a bottle of champagne and i remember my whole being felt lifted i felt like this door had cracked open and of course you know it, it only was a little crack right and it's been closed over and over and over again and that feeling of you know the door being closed despite all of the efforts at resistance i think is you know very hard for people to live with Uh, yeah the Uh, language i i feel like it it's like a cellular level of change that's happening to me i feel it in me um i'm witnessing it in my students i feel it in the people around me Absolutely. Sleep problems, Mm -hmm. digestive problems, infections. I mean, I've noticed that um, people are more prone to, after my father died, I kept getting infections Mm because my immune system was all messed up. I'm seeing that now. You know, people people who have allergies, the allergies are worse. Um, So yeah, on the cellular level, it very much affects us. And it's in a way that is incomparable to other things. You know, I heard somebody on TV saying, well, it isn't 1968. And she meant that in the sense of it isn't as bad as 1968. Now, I was alive in 1968. Mm-hmm. I was, I was, you know, a young adult in 1968. And I can tell you, it's a thousand times worse because, you know, she was thinking of the assassinations and um, the war in Vietnam. But there was a clarity you know among those of us who were angry and resisting there was or and even grieving you know over martin luther king and and bobby kennedy there was a clarity about um you know who stood where and who stood there and there was a sense in uh, a, a belief in the uh efficacy of resistance. I mean, we could see, you know, the way in which people don't have that now. They just don't have that now, even though they're doing it. You know, they're doing it because what else can we do? It almost feels like whack-a-mole, like you're just playing a giant game of whack-a-mole and you're trying to figure out, you know, I love that you said clarity, right? Like where, where do we put our energy? Because every time you think you know where to put your energy, of resistance, another mole comes up and you're like, oh, I got to got to hit this one now. And yeah, it's exactly. making us frenzied. And I think that, you know, in 1968, when I compare, you know, what uh, in 1968, I was 21. Um, you know, when I look at 21 year olds now, I, you know, and I remember um, a certain kind of you could say it's naive. But there was a sense of, um, for the first time in history, because this, of course, was, these were the baby boomers. So, you know, we were the first generation of young people to feel like we could make culture and we could change culture. And that was really quite an intoxicating feeling, you know. Uh, I think that when you look at the 
18, 19, 20-year-old resistors now, they're not intoxicated at all. They're resisting, you know, the Parkland kids. Mm -hmm. They're resisting and they're doing it really in a very savvy way. But I don't think they're doing it with a sense of, of excitement and joy. Mm -hmm. You know, they're doing it, um, you know, in, with uh, none of this is sexy, right? There's nothing yeah. sexy about resistance. In. It's grueling and it's uh, time consuming and it's energy. It's psychically exhausting. So yeah, you could see exactly. why you might not want to opt into that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, for yeah. for sanity's sake. Something that you said made me think about. The, you mentioned how like we're just continuously seeing power being replicated, and that it feels disheartening. Something that we like to talk about on the podcast is that these are structural things, right? That this is not just an issue about Donald Trump. And, right. and you wrote in what was then to be the afterword, Donald Trump, we need to remember, was elected, not dropped from the sky like a piece of crash debris, not plopped on an inherited throne, the product of centuries of inbreeding, but elected. It's an amazing thing and deserves some complex analysis, especially when you consider all that we have learned from the inauguration onward about the subversion of democratic process during the election. But how do we, I think what you're talking about, it almost all feels so big, right? It's these structural issues. I wrote a piece before the election that I thought Trump running was good news because it meant it was like the final last gasp of all these structural problems. Mm -hmm. um, coming to fruition in him. And then I ended the piece saying, but if he wins, we, we have a bigger conversation to have. Right. Um, and I feel like you're having it, right? You're having it in this piece that there is a lot that we need to look at when he is elected, when, when, and, and we see power being reified in all the, you know, misogyny being reified, racism being reified even uh, this weird imperialism, my, my field is post-colonial theory, like this weird imperialism being reified. Mm -hmm. Like what you're hearing? Become a patron of our podcast and help us be sustainable. Click that little green become a patron button on our Podbean page and it'll get you started. But here's the cool news. There are three different patron levels that you can participate in to show your love and support of our hard work for you. A monthly commitment of just $1, which is less than the cost of a cup of coffee, gets you a large, cool, square sticker for your computer with our freshly designed logo, and you can share the love. For $5 a month, you get two stickers, a shout out on Facebook and on the podcast, plus our newest patron level of $8 a month. You'll get all the love and swag of the $1 and $5 levels, but also early access to every episode and expert extra. So join our patron team at this $8 a month level and be in the know before everyone else. All of your donations are greeted with our deepest gratitude. Thanks for keeping us sustainable. So your work, though, I think brings clarity to how we approach resistance. Um, I think you help us all make sense of where to put our efforts, what to think about, what to pay attention to. You're, you're awesome at, in your social media about like, hey, it's easy to lose sight of this story, for example, in the midst of all the other louder stories. So what, uh, you know, what does, if uh, you have students, do you teach undergrads or just grads? I teach undergrads. Okay. I'm in the process of gradually retiring. Ah. You know, I'm in I'm an old babe. Oh, please, um, you know, please most, girl. Most, 
No, most people don't know that because, you know, I I don't think like a <laughs> I don't think like a, a person of my generation. And many people of my generation don't think the way we are stereotyped as thinking, mm-hmm. right? But um, I am, you know, way past retirement age. And uh, so I'm gradually kind of like moving out of not writing. I would sure. do that forever. And um, I do want to get more active in, in local and also ultimately national politics. I don't mean by way of running. I mean by way of supporting and doing what I can to help people get elected. Um, but I am gradually like moving out of mm-hmm. my academic role. So yeah, I do. I teach both graduate students and undergraduates, but I don't teach a lot. Anymore. Got it. Because I find a lot of my undergrads are bereft. They, I mean, I feel mm-hmm. like they, they, I was wondering what, you know, advice you're giving them when they come to your office in the yeah. darkness of the soul moment, um, which <laughs> yeah. I have a lot. But if, if that's not happening, that's, you know, fine. But if you're if you had some thoughts about oh, what you might no, say to those not. millennials that are like, what what do we do? Because I think they're lacking intoxication because they just see this as survival. I don't I, yeah. I think there's like very little joy allowed in their movement, which is sad. And we're, I think our job is to teach them how to find some joy in their resistance. But I think they just see this as like basic work in order for there to be a nation to live in. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And yeah, I just, uh, the last course I taught was an undergraduate course. And, you know, it was designed to be both um, uh, realistic, you know, critical of our culture, but also to, to, to kind of be lift, to lift them up a little bit, because it was about women who don't behave. And we, we read a whole lot of different uh, uh, books and articles. And, um, you know, I was really struck by some of the discussions, how they went from a discussion of, of you know, someone who was a, a powerful and inspiring resistor, you know, whether we, it was Serena Williams, I'm trying to remember all the people that we read, we read um, uh, some stuff about fat resistance, we did read my books on yeah. Anne Bowen and, uh, and Hillary Clinton, and how the discussions would move from an, an appreciation of the person that we were studying to a discussion of that what was tinged with the depression and desperation of that they were all feeling. I mean, that's kind of, you know, put vaguely and not very mm-hmm. articulately. No, I, it's, it reflects my situation in the classroom as well. Yeah. So, for example, and I'm just thinking of an example, um, we were reading the book Slut, and uh, we got to talking about the 13 Reasons Why mm-hmm. book and TV show, and we, we, we went so quickly from um, talking about anti-slut shaming to a discussion of suicide. And when we went to the discussion of suicide, there were so many examples in the class of friends who had almost a friend, a friend who had. There was a guy in the class who began by railing against the TV show, which I, I had, we had begun to talk about because of the idea of bullying and shaming, right? And he moved it he said, I hate that show. I just hate that show. 
And it turned out that there was a story behind, you know, his dislike of the show, which had to do with the fact that he felt it romanticized something that, you know, he had just gone through with a friend. And then all the stories started popping out. And, you know, suddenly you're faced with, okay, my role here is not just that of helping them to understand this culture, but there's real emotional help that has to come out of this class. And that's kind of been, in a sense, the way my classes have been from the very beginning. But the, the kind of help and the degree has changed. You know, one of the things that really shaped my teaching was the fact that the first research that I did was on the body and body shame. And I had my students write journals about their feelings about their bodies. And in those journals, you know, this eventually became the book Unbearable Weight. In those journals, I saw a level of pain that, you know, I never would have seen had they been writing journals about what, I don't know, you know, some other, something that didn't impinge on their lives as much. And so from the very beginning, um, because I've tried to have my students always have the opportunity to relate what we're reading, even if it was Plato and Aristotle way back at the beginning when I was still a philosopher, Mm -hmm. to their lives, there's always been that element of, um, you know, trying to, to address an emotional need in my teaching and also in my, in my writing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people have asked me, like, what, what do I really want to accomplish in my writing? And the truth is that the, the comments that I get that make me feel the best, that make me feel like, you know, there's a reason for me doing what I'm doing, are the ones where people say, I really felt alone. I didn't, I, I, I felt alone, even though I knew other people were suffering. I, it wasn't until I read your book that I felt as though somebody was reading my mind and somebody was, you know, like somebody's heart was where my heart was at. And it was out there and it was depressing. And I screamed, you know, like you said, but being able to um, give voice to something that perhaps people don't always have the opportunity to give voice to themselves and that they then can say, hey, that's what I feel. That makes me feel better than anything. It's it's the best compliment, right? Like that you've fired somebody's, you know, empathy synapses, like you're like somebody else is connect has connected to you, even though you've never met them before. Exactly. It's, and I think that's I, not I think I know that's one of the things I admire about your work is that you seem to have found a way to be a public intellectual and also be successful in the academy. I think that's a lot. Um, you know, I'm always trying to figure out that balance. Uh, is that something that you consciously did? Like, did you consciously make that choice that I'm going to write for a wider audience than the academy? Um, I don't think it was conscious. Um, I think that what the way I would describe it is that uh, when I was much, much younger, I wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to be a writer. Mm. But there's no money in my family. And, you know, striking out as a writer. I'm a first gen student. I get that. Exactly. (laughs) You can follow your dreams only so much if there ain't no money. (laughs) Exactly. 
So I had to find a job, basically, you know, and after dropping out of school a couple of times and having jobs in bookstores and stuff, I realized, wait a minute, you know, I need something more substantial than this. And so it seemed to me the closest thing to who I wanted to be was um, academia, because that was a place where you talked and had ideas and people who wrote and all that kind of stuff. Of course, I immediately, you know, confronted the fact that the kind of writing that people do in academia was not the kind of writing that I was interested in doing. And again, amen. Uh, <laughs> but the thing is, I because of all the years where I had dropped out and been in bookstores, and, you know, I, I, I got to graduate school late. Nobody was going to push me around. You know, I was going to write the way I wanted to. I would have not been able to do that when, if, first of all, I had been, um, entered the academy when I was younger, when most people do. Uh, when I'm, did you enter the academy? Well, I was, there, I was, let's see. Okay. I, I was in and out of getting an undergraduate degree, mm -hmm. you know, do dropped out twice. Mm -hmm. Um, had then had some jobs for a period of years. I finally went into graduate school when I was thirty. Me too. <laughs> so, hey, and my, and and Amanda, who's the co-host of the podcast, we all had very different trajectories, but we all yeah. I think there's something to be said about starting graduate school in your thirties as a woman. Oh, I think that yeah. for me it was really important because. Um, I, one of the reasons why I originally dropped out of undergraduate school was because I felt so intimidated and bullied. So, <laughs> I'm like pointing at my nose right now. Yes, yes. yes exactly. Yep. Um, you know, I remember writing a piece about King Lear in which I compared, I brought in my own family and my father. And the teacher gave me a D on it and said, we really don't want to hear about your family in this clearly not a feminist scholar because we know in feminist scholarship oh we love personal narrative well, and anecdote but yes that, well, i'm sure was, the academy was, was not thrilled with that at the moment and there was no there was no uh, academic feminism right. in those days i mean we're going back when i started as an undergraduate in 1964 think about that 1964 there was no academic feminism i mean we had to create it yeah i was just about to say you did you, you were I mean, one of the people who created it so thank you it was, but it was so, I feel so lucky to have been a part of that generation that, you know, that uh, felt, again, this word clarity that had so much clarity about what we needed to fight and what we needed to change. Mm -hmm. And uh, so by the time I got to graduate school, you know, in my 30s, um, and had already been through a rotten marriage and you know, a nervous breakdown and many odd jobs. There's no way a bunch of white male philosophers were going to push me around. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think that rather than my starting out thinking, hey, I want to be a public intellectual, it was more a question of I'm going to write what I want to write. Mm -hmm. Which isn't to say that I didn't have to play the game. That's exactly what I call ways. it. Play the game like this kind of like calculation of, okay, I need to do these things that no one will ever read, but I need exactly. to do them because that and matters I, for my career. Yeah. And I need, I need to talk the talk. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that for me, the biggest change was feeling um, 
that I needed to uh, prove myself as an intellectual by way of talking the talk of my discipline philosophy of all Ooh. discipline. Ooh. That's my degree. Damn. Yeah, um, that's, that's, there's a lot. Okay. There's a lot you know, there. There's a lot as a woman <laughs> there. Yeah. Oh, my God. First um, gen. I think you're first gen. Am I assuming that based on the story you just told? Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. suddenly in this, uh, what used to at least be, in my mind, kind of very stodgy, rigid oh, uh, fields. Yeah. And here it, you are. I mean, one of these days, if you want to just hear stories about what it was like when Judith Butler and Sandra Harding and Iris Young and I, we were all part of the same kind of young cohort mm -hmm. of philosophers who were trying to break through, you know, into that, that really exclusively dominated by men. Um, and not just men. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. No, yeah, yeah, we're right. But, Misogyny can be enacted by women. It's a good reminder here. <laughs> good reminder. And also, I just want to say, I just like fainted a little bit by that last sentence that you just put all of you together. <laughs> I can only imagine what those rooms were like. Oh, my God. It, it really is something to, I mean, at some point, we'll all have to get together. Those of us who are still, you know, some of Unfortunately, Iris Young and Sandy Barkey are gone. Um, they were fantastic um, figures within that kind of, you know, breaking out. I mean, it was such an incredibly exciting time to be writing and just, you know, talk, a, write a book about what it was like to be, um, you know, feminist philosophers in such an incredibly male-dominated discipline, you know, People in English have different history there. You know, yeah, yeah, of course, they've always had to face sexism. But it's different because the discipline itself is not associated with, you know, rigor and control right. and, you know, the, the stifling of emotion. And in the days when I was studying body, oh, my God, no. Philosophy had nothing to do with the body. <laughs> Oh, please. Um, that all had to be, you know, broken open. So it just, you know, I guess by virtue of a combination, to get back to your original question, combination of the support of being a part of a, you know, a developing feminist community, just my own desires as a writer to speak to people and not just a handful of, yeah. you know, of philosophers it happened really gradually, you know, because I did have to get that PhD. Yep. And you right? got to get the tenure and you got to get your permissions. <laughs> all and... that. But, it, you know, it gradually happened. And I was lucky um, in all kinds of ways. For example, I and this is something that, you know, in a way it's a message to graduate students out there. I was really lucky to have my first job at a small liberal arts college that did not, um, where I didn't feel the intense pressure to always demonstrate my professionality and my command of the jargon, and my command of theory. They were really interested in teaching. They were interested in interdisciplinary work. I was, you know, there's one floor and all of us were on the same floor, the philosophers, the sociologists, the people in English, you know, we did things together. And, uh, I was able, you know, that so many of my students get told, my best students get told by other teachers, not by me, 
you're really smart. You should be applying to, you know, these top tier yeah, research. I was told that. Yeah, I bet you were. <laughs> I was told that, and I said, I want to be at a teaching institution. And I was told that that was a waste. Those were the words that were used. Well, it sure wasn't a waste for me. No, I'll and not me either. Good. I'm thrilled to, to be where I am. But yeah, that is still you the know, attitude. I mean, it, it's, it was, uh, you know, some people who really want to work in a certain way within a discipline. Yeah, they should, you know, they should apply to those. But so many of my students I can see want to do, the reason why they're my students is because they want to do the kind of writing I do. Mm-hmm. Well, if they want to do the kind of writing I do, they're, they're not going to be allowed to do it. You know, if they go, if they follow a certain career path. And um, a lot of them have been told you know, as I think you're suggesting, you were told that it's just, you know, why are you selling yourself so short? Mm-hmm. You know, why go to a place that values teaching and that isn't going to encourage your research? And, you know, I think that they don't quite understand the intellectual freedom that comes with being at a place in which there's less pressure to be, to demonstrate that you're part of the club. Um, there is so much pressure to show that in my writing classes, the first thing I have them all do is to come in with one of the pieces they consider to be the best piece they've written. This is a graduate practicum. And then to just cross out all of the jargon hmm. and <laughs> substitute yep. words that somebody might actually know. <laughs> exactly. And substitute them for real words. And you know what they what they realize is when they use that jargon, they didn't actually know what the hell they were talking about. Mm-hmm. They just use the jargon instead of thinking. And once they actually had to think about it, they discovered what they wanted to say. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's uh, it's become a real um for me, this business of speaking outside the academy really segued from being something that just naturally developed as my own mode of writing to being something of a mission with mm-hmm. my students. I feel that. And they're lucky They're lucky that you do that for them. And I want to give a shout out right now to my disadvisor because he did the same thing for me. He never thought that I should be jargony and all that. You know, who am I writing to? So uh, deep, if you're listening... Thank you. <laughs> um, because it is a, it's a gift you're giving your students because we know that not every mentor is giving that advice. Um, and so they're lucky that you're telling them that. I think they're really lucky to have yeah. you. Thank you. I, I think they are. And, you know, I had mentors like that, so I know how important it can be. I hear you. So let's wrap up and hear about what you're going to write next or what you're working on next because it sounds like you're moving out of the classroom which we know takes up a lot of mental and psychic energy right that takes away or makes writing harder at least for me um at this moment in my life (laughs) with a little person and and promotions and all these things um so as that space gets opened up you've mentioned some of your resistance work moving into thinking about politics what is on the writing horizon what's the thing that that is bubbling or being worked on right now if you're willing to tell us Sure. Um, well, I have like a few things that always, I've been always, <laughs> always a few things. Um, one thing that I was uh, 
I was doing before I got involved in the Hillary Clinton book was to try to put together a a collection of like the the articles that most that get of mine that get used they're usually chapters from the books mm -hmm. that get used in courses you know starting with unbearable rate right up to the Hillary Clinton and to put together a kind of Bordeaux reader I was just gonna say that a Bordeaux reader I love <laughs> it I'm smiling like so wide right now <laughs> love that I love idea. That. I'm so glad you're smiling because, you know, frankly, one of the things that held me back was it just seems so hubristic. Oh, you like know what? Like, <laughs> hashtag immodest women. Have you seen that on Twitter? Like, <laughs> right? No, this is not hubristic. It's your work, right? And it deserves to be in one place at this point. I I'm, I'm in love with this project. Well, thank you. I'm glad to hear that because, um, you know, it is something that I, uh, I, thought of for the last, you know, three or four years and keep backing away from. And then, and I'm thinking now, you know, I'm kind of exhausted from the Hillary Clinton stuff yeah, and, and the follow-up writing. It is really exhausting, you know, and it's exhausting in a couple of different ways. And one way is that, you know, I'm, I never imagined that my books are going to change the world. But I had hoped that whether in my book or someone else's book or, you know, just as someone who appears on, in the media, that this counter narrative that I tell would start to come out. And it hasn't. You know, I mean, we, we do not have the media, no matter how much they criticize Trump, we've never gotten to the place where anyone says, this election was stolen from Hillary Clinton, and we all participated, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't just the Russians. We all participated, and including us, the media. And they have never gotten there. And that's been depressing to me. You know, I don't care if, if you know, it's not my book that they wind up commenting on and getting there by means of my book. It could be somebody else's book. I really don't care how it happens. But I have really expected it to happen. And instead, there's been still so much Hillary derangement syndrome. You know, it keeps getting repeated. Like we can't let go of it. No. Um, and the, you know, it, at the same time, you know, so that for a while, you know, I, I found myself just over and over writing versions of, listen, listen, listen. <laughs> I, I, I equate it to like screaming into a canyon. Like exactly. I actually made a meme of myself doing that, like just screaming into a canyon. Like that's why will exactly. nobody listen? Yeah. That's exactly how it, it, it feels. It, it, so hard. It's hard. It's hard. And at this point, you know, I sort of feel like I just can't, I have to stop doing that. You know, I know that a lot of people count on me to do that, that, you know, they, they, they like having my voice stand up for her and, you know, continue critiquing the election and all that. But I think at this point, you know, I have to give myself a little bit of a break. Let, you and, know, it's a choir. Just, Let somebody uh, else hold the note for a while, right? Like you get to take a breath. Somebody can and hold the note and you can breathe right that's that's res yeah. that's that's how yeah, resistance I, works that's a good thing yeah and i think that you know it's possible that um you know the the of course there are plenty of people who are holding the note unfortunately none of us have broken through yeah. 
through the mass media. You know, it's going to yes. take somebody like um, Joy Reed or, uh, you know, more and more I've thought that uh, Nicole Wallace is mm. a mm-hmm. somebody, you know, this ex-Republican. The ex-Republicans yes. are... Yeah, I love them. <laughs> Okay. Um, who is the is his name Scott Schmidt? Who's the one that uh, denounced yesterday? Steve Schmidt. Steve Schmidt. Steve right, right. Like, thank you, sir. <laughs> we need yeah. more. That's who's that's who it's going to be. Because I think at this point, sometimes it do, the canyon is not listening to us, but no, they will listen to him. Right, they will listen. They will to him. listen to him. And I think that they somebody like Schmidt or Nicole. I think I have more faith to tell the honest story about mm-hmm. Hillary because. Um, I don't know. There's just there. There's he's still a guy. You know? <laughs> True. Good point. Excellent point. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there aren't guys, you know, like um, who have been her great champions, but in terms of they too have occupied the same places I've occupied on the fringes. Yes. And I fantasize, I guess, a little bit about Nicole finally having a show where she's devoted to hey. Let's just call this the way it is. Mm-hmm. The woman had the election stolen from her. It wasn't just the Russians. It was the media. It was misogyny. It was Sanders. It was Comey. Mm-hmm. You know, I just long to have somebody prominent do that. But I'm going to stop screaming about it myself and give myself because, you know, they're really not listening to me. We are, and, but yeah, I get it. I, yeah, you know what I'm yeah, saying. I, to- we're, I totally we're know, and I think the Bordeaux reader is a good idea. There's what yeah. I was talking about before, mm-hmm. which is to 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 work with um, my sisters mm-hmm. on looking at you know the psychological end of what's happened to us. Um, I really love learning, and you know this is something that I would need to be a learner again to to really get into and. That would be that would be a good place to be for a while to be reading some books on subjects that I really don't know about. I love that. I love diving into a new project, especially when you feel like you have the space and time for it. It's it's a great feeling. The last thing I want to ask is what did it feel like when you saw and what happened that Hillary talked about your book? Uh, <laughs> I know what you did on Twitter. I mean, I, I know. But like for yeah. our like what it, what was it like when you saw that? Well, actually, the more exciting thing was hearing her talk about it on her podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, because was, she talked about it. She yeah. talked about it more um, than just, you know, referring to the, the massage. I mean, it was both things were thrilling. Both things were thrilling. But the, the podcast, you know, she she talks about having you know, somebody gave her this book. I know. I, I That was the one she did. On, yeah, I, it was. And there it yeah. was, you know, and that was very exciting. I kind of knew something like that was going to happen because um, her staff and Bill Clinton's staff had been in touch with me Mm. and said, we just want you to know how much we love your book. Oh, my God. And Hillary loves it. And she's giving it to all kinds of people to read. And I had a uh, phone call with uh, William Jefferson Clinton, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) which was kind of extraordinary. And so I knew that they really liked it. And it's one of the things that kept me going because, you know, when it first book first came out, as you can imagine, because of the criticisms of Bernie. Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, I was just assaulted 
with, you know, the worst kinds of attacks, yes. you know, sexist, nasty, gross, yes. disgusting, disgusting, disgusting and things that people deliberate misreadings of the book yep. by a number of, of, you know, Bernie, um, you know, extreme extremists mm-hmm. within the Bernie camp. And it was it was pretty shocking to me just how fierce their anger was and the it was balanced out. You know, these are like things that happened right after the book came out. It was balanced out by two things, Katy Perry and her swimsuit holding the book up. (laughs) And but even more than that, getting that the you know, having um uh, Clinton, the two Clintons' staffs, you know, emailing me. I was in a trip with my graduate students going to a conference, and I'm in the car, and suddenly I get these emails from, um, you know, his personal assistant and her personal assistant, and it was like, oh, my God. <laughs> did you scream? Um, I mean, I just feel like I would be oh, screaming and dancing. I, said, I don't know what yeah, I would do. <laughs> you guys, you guys, you won't believe what just happened. Don't crash the car, but you won't believe what just happened. And, of course, they were lovely, and they... You know, they screamed along with me, and um, those really kept me going when I realized that there was a whole bunch of people who hated me from about this book. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the mainstream media ignored me entirely. Really? You know, one, oh, yeah. One of the things that huh. um, has been most, I don't know what word to use, my unbearable weight, the male body, Anne Boleyn, all reviewed by the New York Times and other major newspapers. This book was not reviewed by any of them. Really? Really. The only reason why anybody knows about this book is because of how I've worked it on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, I'm trying to remember where I heard about it now Uh, that you say that. The mainstream media, nothing, nothing. It's such a smart book. Like it's it's not vitriolic. It's not. It's like well, it's a. I don't. I'm shocked. I'm I am angry now at the New York Times as well. I was well. I think part of it. You know, there's a lot of possible reasons for it, and you know, I don't like to get sort of paranoid about it. But the fact is, I do criticize the New York Times a lot. True. That's true. Names. You know, I basically. I probably was the first person to say, really, the New York Times is responsible for the email thing becoming a scandal. Mm-hmm. And I named Michael Schmidt, who is now the darling of the New York Times. And, you know, I I criticize, again, with names, the MSNBC people like Todd, Chuck Todd and Andrew. Now, you know, I, do I really think people got together and said, oh, you know, we can't do anything about this book? No, I don't think that's what happened. But I think rather it's the case that the appeal of the blame Clinton narrative was so strong, right? Yeah. That people picked up my book and said, oh, this is just, this is just a Hillbot. You know, this is just somebody who loves Hillary. And we saw what happened with Shattered. I mean, Shattered, which probably has the most inadequate explanation for why Hillary lost, doesn't mention the Russians doesn't mention sexism, doesn't mention the media. It's all about not going to Michigan. Right, right. Great. Okay. (laughs) Right. That made the bestseller list was reviewed all over the place, you know, and I think that was a narrative that 
soothed a lot of people, soothed the de Democrats because they could blame her, soothed the media because they were off the hook. And I don't think that there was a kind of, you know, a space for a book mm -hmm. that people saw as redeeming her. And, you know, and then there may have just been people who added their voice to that, you know, resenting the fact that I actually did take the media to task. I don't know. I really don't know. But it was um, surprising to me. I thought, surely, you know, they may not like it. You know, I didn't expect that the New York Times was going to give me a rave review. But I expected a review. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when, uh, when Hillary referenced it in those things, did you see any renewed interest? Or did you see any kind of like peak or that... It's still I, just I saw I saw in I saw re sales activity, but I certainly didn't see any increased activity in the press. That's really the press yeah. the media has ignored me entirely with this book. It's really quite striking. It seems when like I the was, first book to go to. Like I I mean I think it might be the first book we reviewed on the podcast because I to me it was just so important i don't know <laughs> i'm i didn't realize this media well, kind of shutout happened it oh yeah it was a really it's kind of extraordinary that it's been able to have the life that it's had given the fact that i mean it, it has been a total shutout a total shutout now with mm. with the exception of a strange little interview that i was given at the very beginning by one of by chanel something or other on msnbc in the middle of a saturday afternoon which that's a whole other story. I won't go into it because you don't have time for me to go into it. But, you know, I thought of that as, okay, you know, this is the beginning of an interest in the book. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't. It was actually the end of it. Hmm. And one of the things that happened in that interview was she um, advertised the book describing Hillary's main fault. I guess she hadn't read the book. No, she did not, clearly. Yes. And she started out by asking me that, you know, how did, where did me, uh, Hillary go wrong? And I said, well, actually, that's <laughs> what my book perfect. argues. Yeah, this book is about and a perfect clusterfuck, right? Not, not her. Kept, yeah, I mean, she just kept pushing on that and pushing on that and pushing on that. And, you know, at one point, um, I guess I gave a little bit of my critique of the media and the, the drone of email, email, email. And she didn't really want to hear about that. She really didn't want to hear about that. And Shattered came out a week later. Uh, yeah. And everybody was like, you Pe know, people oh, like, yeah. people like being soothed by comforting myths. They love it. Yeah. And they love nasty stuff about Hillary. They do. I mean, Hillary really has become the whipping post. I mean, she's a scapegoat. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary, you know, what has been thrown at that woman. I mean, she's to blame for everything. I hope when people ask me what she's doing, I'm like, I hope she's eating cheese and drinking Chardonnay somewhere <laughs> and playing with her grandkids. I do. I, I do. really just hope she's just eating all the cheese in the world. That, that's all my wish for Hillary Clinton at this point. Because she's taken really enough. pie fat cheese. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The good <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, I just hope and that's all she's exactly. doing. Exactly. And Hagen does ice cream. Yeah. I, I wish that for her. So uh, before I thank you, I would just want to thank Raging Chicken Press for letting us use their studio today. 
so that we could have woo, have That's this uh, great, great <laughs> interview with good sound quality. And I, I can't tell you how happy I am I got to talk to you. This is like huge. So thank you for the generosity you've given of your time and of your smarts. And I wish all the cheese in the world for you as well. Um, and I get all the cheese in the world. <laughs> I just thank you for helping us always try to make sense of things that we maybe can't always make sense of. And I, you, you get to... You so get to get off that, that treadmill for a little bit. <laughs> I just, I appreciate everything that you've said. And it's been so much fun talking to you. And I'm looking forward to listening. I noticed you're going to be doing a podcast on The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> yeah, we, my podcast partner came up with a game of, is it America or is it The Handmaid's Tale? <laughs> so, oh my God. Yeah. Did you see this episode? Oh God. Well, I, I have that on my list of things to talk about <laughs> because okay. I saw you were writing I, about I, that on Facebook, but I, uh, yes, I did. So I yeah, I won't say anything about it because you haven't seen. No, it, no, no, no. I did see it. No, I saw it. No, I saw. It. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I watched mean, the last one. Amazing to have that on the same day that we were talking about the separation of children, infants from their. I, I can't. I, I mean, I you couldn't put that in a novel because no one would believe it. Like yeah. you know that if you put that in fiction, people would be like, oh, that's so contrived. <laughs> And yet exactly. it was happening. So this is uh, another shout out for Handmaid's Tale because we talk about it a lot on the podcast. So thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> yeah, our fun. Okay. We yeah. try to find some joy, right? I mean, I think that's what we try to do is try to find some joy in the sadness. So thank you so much. Thank and you. Cody. Have a great day of writing and whatever you're doing. Probably watching television today. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Enjoy all of it. Thank you, Susan. Not the news. Not no, the not news. the news. A lot yeah. of like, I don't know, some terrible Netflix show would be my advice. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's my go-to. Awesome. Thank you so much, Susan. Okay. okay. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this Expert Extra. For more information on our podcast and to find episodes, please visit Inside254Site, that's S-I-T-E dot WordPress dot com. You can find us on Podbean and iTunes, and please follow us on Facebook and Twitter for all the latest. Thanks for listening. <laughs>